in my old age, I'm figuring out what I'm going to do. And I don't want to just twiddle my thumbs, but I recognize that things are going to shift a little bit. And so one of the things I've done for 45 years is teach my leadership class in our church. And uh, it's probably my most enjoyable thing to do. And probably a thousand years from now, if God's going to show me and tell me what I did that mattered most, it'll probably be my leadership class that I've been teaching And uh, at this point, one of the things I am looking forward to doing is mentoring and teaching, influencing other pastors, especially younger pastors that are getting started on uh, how to succeed in ministry. And one of the key things is just doing the right things, Uh, the most impactful things uh, as far as ministry goes. There's sort of the traditional thing that you preach and and organize and put together a church, and uh, but... uh, I think over the years, the things that have had the most impact as far as my ministry is concerned is that leadership class I teach each and every year. And so for the last couple of years, I've added ladies to the class. So this year I have um, 20 guys and 8 ladies, and uh, it's an 8-month class, and uh, many of you in this room have already gone through it. Uh, Many of you haven't, but uh, the goal of the class when you're done is that you would be uh, more than equipped to do and lead a ministry. And so um, it expands those that are doing ministry in the church quite successfully. And so right now I've got six other pastors I'm working with on starting them in their churches and doing the same thing. Today I did a recording uh, on doing it uh, to be used in a, uh, a Bible college and seminary. And then this uh, next year in January, I'm going to have a three-day seminar for pastors. Hopefully, we'll have about 100 here, and I'll teach the whole concept with all the content in it as well. And so, that's my goal. And so, tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about that from Colossians, because Paul was an... uh, he did that. And in fact, it was Paul uh, writing to Timothy that 40-plus years ago that prompted me to begin the ministry, and then it's evolved over time. So let me read to you Colossians 1, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Have you ever met anybody with the name Epaphras? One of the, uh, I remember a class I took in, uh, in Greek. One of the questions was pronounce Epaphras correctly. And my Greek professor was a really, really fussy. I remember I got an F on a 10-question quiz, and I missed one question. And what I did is I misspelled Baptist. Instead of spelling it B-A-P, I spelled it B-A-B. And I said, Dr. Clapp, I says, this isn't reasonable to give me an F on a 10 question quiz because I misspelled a word. He said, you're a Baptist, aren't you? I said, I am. He said, you should know how to spell Baptist. I stick with my grade. 
And so I was really nervous about pronouncing Epaphras. I didn't know if I was going to do it correctly or not, but if I had gotten it wrong, I am sure I would have got an F on my 10-question quiz. And I studied like a dog in all my classes, but I studied twice as hard in my Greek class as I did in any other class, probably as much as I did in all the classes put together. I got my lowest grade in it. It just used to just drive me crazy. He was such a fussy, fussy guy, but he was. So anyway, I pronounced Epaphras the right way because I learned it from Dr. Clapp how to do it. I've never met anybody with that name. I'm not sure anybody would name their kid Epaphras, but I'm sure somebody might. Maybe over in Greece they would. But this is, uh, he became famous when Paul wrote this letter because he puts him in the letter several different times. Moving on to the end of Colossians, verse, uh, chapter 4, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. So that verse right there, it probably has influenced my life more than any verse in the New Testament as far as ministry is concerned. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he is a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then in Philemon, Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. And so when anybody is mentioned in the Bible, there's a reason God puts them in there as an example or as a model. And so I thought we'd look at him tonight as a person. Number one, you know, Epaphras was probably a disciple of Paul at Ephesus. So uh, there are certain books in the Bible that are called prison epistles. And uh, the reason is because Paul wrote them in prison. And there's four of them. And if you want to get an A in this class, you have to know what all four are. And so one of them is the epistle of Ephesus. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and he's in prison when he writes it. Second one was uh, Philippians. He wrote to the church at Philippi. The third was Colossians. And the fourth was Philemon. Those are the four books he wrote. He probably wrote them uh, within the same week. Because as you compare those books, you'll see that they're almost identical uh, passages in them. And so he wrote a letter and then wrote another and wrote another. And so at Ephesus, one of the strongest churches that Paul started, uh, he had a little bit of a what you might call a cohort or a group of men that he was discipling. In Acts, it describes it. He says in uh, nine, Acts 19, verse 7, there were in all about 12 men. Twelve men, this is his little group, his band of brothers, as it were. Jesus had twelve disciples. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, that is, those twelve, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now this is at Ephesus where this is taking place before he was in prison. He's doing ministry there, but he has this these group of 12 with him. And, uh, and because of the effectiveness of the ministry there, as it was going out from that point, it says that everybody in all of Asia 
heard the gospel. That's a, an effective ministry in light of the fact that there was no internet and no telephones and no um, email and no text messages and very little of the New Testament. And so the word went out to everybody in the whole area from this hub. And one of the reasons was because of these 12 individuals whom Paul was discipling. So here's another little trivia question. He writes this letter. We're looking at it. Uh, the letter uh, to the church at Colossae called Colossians. When did Paul start that church? The answer is he never went to Colossae. He didn't start that church. And it was probably Epaphras who started the church as a member of this little group that went out as Paul trained them. Uh, Mark chapter 3, this is speaking of Jesus, he went up from, uh, on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. Whom he himself wanted. That would be an honor, wouldn't it? To be one of those whom Jesus wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach. Now, it looks like that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did. He had these twelve that were with him, and he was teaching and training them, but they went out on these little excursions uh, for purpose of planting and starting churches, even uh, what Jesus had done. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, this was the key verse for my uh, leadership class tra training. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's called duplicating yourself. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I taught you some key things. You go teach some other people the same stuff who will be able to teach other people the same stuff. And uh, what kind of guys was Timothy supposed to look for? That verse on the screen. Things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men. Faithful men. So why did Paul or Jesus pick Peter and John and James and the others? Because they were faithful. Paul did the same thing. He picked individuals that were faithful. Number two, Epaphras was probably the, uh, the one who planted the church at Colossae as well as at Laodicea and Hierapolis. I have a book in my library called Church Planting Methods of St. Paul. And I, I got it when I was going to um, getting my master's degree at graduate school. And uh, it was an old, old book that studied his methods of planting churches. And so I read it. And I read it before we did planted any of our daughter churches. And uh, we've got seven daughter churches in the area. And uh, planting churches is the responsibility of any church um, make disciples is important but the key way to do that is by planting churches and the hardest part about planting churches is finding faithful people to lead them and so Epaphras was one of those he goes on and, and Paul says since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our fellow, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ. And so they heard the word at Colossae from Epaphras. 
For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Number three, Epaphras was in prison with Paul at Rome. So if you want to get close, to, you know, as a guy, become buddies with another guy, what's the key way to do that? Uh, well, my dad said fighting in a war with someone. You get close to an individual that you fight in a war with, and you never, ever lose that relationship. Well, I'm not planning on doing that personally. I don't know. That might happen, but I doubt it. Uh, so what I often do, if I want to spend time with a guy and develop a relationship with him, I go fishing with him. Uh, that's a, usually works. Sometimes it does the opposite, <laughs> but not usually. Usually it's just a sort of a bond formed. So what if you were in prison with someone? What would that do to your relationship, do you think? And so Paul and Epaphras were close, and uh, they were in prison together. Now, the prison that Paul was in when he writes these letters is not a typical prison. It was, uh, <clears throat> he was arrested by the Romans because of the, uh, the Jews trying to kill him and, and then going off there. So he was in a house, and he had freedom to have visitors and to move about. He just couldn't leave the house. He was in house arrest, as it were. And so Epaphras was with him. And so he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, my fellow prisoner, they were in prison together uh, for several years. Now, Epaphras had already started the church at Colossae, which is why Paul wrote the letter to the church, because he knew that Epaphras had started it and he knew them. And so that's why he drops the name there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All the saints, saints as believers, Caesar's household. Oh, what does that suggest? That Paul was a prisoner, but everybody that came into the house got saved. Epaphras and Paul led him to Jesus. And so he's writing uh, to the Philippians, and he says, All the saints greet you where I am, especially those of Caesar's household. And so Paul was quite effective. Acts 27, 23, For this, uh, for this very night an angel of, of God to whom I belong <clears throat> and whom I serve stood before me. You ever read some things in the Bible and say, Lord, what am I, chopped liver? Why didn't I ever get an experience like that? Paul has an angel stand right in front of him saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. So I pray a lot. I pray for you by name every week, and I also pray for me. Now, I don't pray for me to have a comfortable life. I don't pray that God would grow hair on my head. I don't pray and ask for help to lose weight, though I would like to do that. I don't even pray to catch fish. But one thing I do pray is I pray that little phrase right there. Behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. What does that mean? They're all going to become believers in Jesus. Think, Lord, would you grant me a bunch of people that I could lead to faith in you? 
Would you just provide the divine appointments, the open doors, the, uh, the opportunities, just wherever I go, people that would connect. Paul was sailing to Rome on this ship, and an angel says, don't worry, Paul, you're not going to drown. And all the dudes on this ship, I've given them to you, granted them to you. I say, Lord, I don't need to see an angel. I'll skip that part, but I really would like that second part, that you would grant me, give me some people. Philippians 1.12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, so he's writing this from prison, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Praetorian Guard, those are all Caesar's hand-picked soldiers. My imprisonment has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so most would think, okay, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why am I in prison? So Paul, he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And Epaphras is with him. And all of Caesar's household become believers. Probably most of the Praetorian Guard, when he's on the ship sailing to Rome, all those are on the ship. You think, what did Paul have that caused him to be so successful in reaching people? Number four, Epaphras was a helper and partner with the Apostle Paul as a missionary. A partner, someone who served and worked with him. He says about Epaphras, Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant. Now, Paul's number one term for himself was a bondservant. He used that title for himself more than any other. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And here he says, a fellow bondservant, a partner. And so he worked with Paul. Number five, Epaphras was a witness for Jesus and the gospel. So, the church planting methods of St. Paul, the book that I mentioned, the church planting methods, plan, strategy. If you're going to plant a church, how are you going to do it? If you're going to be a witness for Jesus, now, Paul led Caesar's household to Jesus. He led his soldiers to Jesus. He led those on the boat to Jesus. And God says, I have given them to you. Why would God do that? Because I think because he knew that Paul would do a good job and that he wanted to. He was hungering, thirsting for souls. So when I pray, I say, Lord, what's it going to take for me, to you, you to do that for me? And so I think a key is that he knows that if he brings someone into your life, that you have a plan. You have a strategy, you have a method, you have something you're going to do. What's the first thing you're going to do if a door opens an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody that doesn't know Jesus? The average individual has zero plan or strategy. It's like, well, whatever. So you've heard me teach this before, but most of you have probably forgotten it. Let me give you a five you got five fingers for a reason. So, 
a method, a plan. First, is that you identify people in your life, live next to a door to you, they, you work with them, you bump into them in the store, occasionally you see them in the barber shop. They're just as, they're in your circle of influence. You think about who those individuals are, which ones don't know Jesus, and then you put them on a piece of paper or on your iPhone or on your iPad, and you pray for them every day. You pray for them every day. That is the single most important thing that you can do. It communicates to God that you have a desire to do something that matters, to reach people with the gospel, to see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The average individual really is fairly unattached to the desire to see people trust Jesus. And it's that want to, that desire, that prompts God to give. The angel says, we've given you every person on the boat. They're yours. You get to lead them to Jesus. So what would prompt God to do that for me, for you? It's our desire. I want to. It's our passion it's saying, Lord, if you don't give me someone to lead to Jesus, just kill me and take me to heaven. There's this strong, strong urge that moves us to do something to reach people with the gospel. The average individual has a low concern for the people in their life that don't know Christ. And therefore, they're not often given what you might call just an obvious open door to communicate or to influence a person for Christ. So... Often it's because we don't know what to do, we're timid about it, we're fearful about doing it, and so the question that I have is, how hard is it to identify people in your life that don't know Jesus, write their name on a piece of paper, and pray for them? And to pray for them every day. How long would it actually take? Five, ten minutes a day, maybe. Now, one of the things that will happen when you pray for somebody every single day is that when you see them, you're going to notice them. It's not going to be just a casual glance and not thinking about it. When you pray for them every day, every day, every day, every day, when you go to work and see them, all of a sudden you're going to notice them. You're going to pay much more attention to them. You're going to be much more aware of conversation with them. You're going to notice any kind of opportunity where your paths cross simply by praying for them every day. It's not hard, but very few people do it. Very few people take the time to write the name down and pray for them every single day. Second thing is look for an opportunity to interact with them socially, even if it's just a conversation about fishing. Just connect with them socially. Now, uh, Joe Aldridge was president of Multnomah Bible College for quite a few years. Before he was, he pastored a church down in Los Angeles, Mariner's Church, and it was the fastest-growing church in the United States, five years running, and it was a church he planted. He was a, a, an amazing uh, evangelist, personal evangelist. And he had this little saying. He said, you have a built-in fish locator. Now, I have on my boat two fish finders. Most fishermen have one. I have two. So locate those fish. Or I fish where there's fish. And uh, he said, you have in you a built-in fish locator. And that is, certain people will respond to you socially and certain people won't. 
It's, I remember when he said that, I was like, ah, I remember that. When I took Patty out, my wife, on our first date, it was like, I'm going to marry her. What was it that prompted me to think that? I have no clue. But there was something that just clicked. When you go fishing with somebody, when you have a conversation with somebody, there's certain people that just sort of click. There's a divine fish locator. You can't save the whole world. But God in His sovereignty is going to bring people into your life that they're your job, your responsibility. He's giving them to you. How do you know who they are? Your divine fish locator goes click, 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 click. Or light comes on, beep, beep. However your fish finder works. Mine goes beep, beep. It drives you crazy when you're fishing. All those beep, beep, and you can't catch any fish. So you have this divine fish locator. People just, you just, eh, you like them. If you pay attention to that, as you prayed for them every day, just do something with them socially. Then third thing is you listen, pay attention to conversation, to an opportunity to meet a need. Opportunity to meet a need. It can be a little thing, loaning them a tool, helping them tune up their car, taking them a meal. But if you listen, pay attention to people, you will hear it, an opportunity, even a small thing, and you connect tremendously with an individual when you meet a need in their life. That's what Jesus did. And the fourth thing is you listen and look for an opportunity to pray for a need. And you ask them, can I pray for your marriage? Can I pray for your kid? Can I pray for your job? Can I pray for your cold? Can I pray for your vaccination or whatever? Just conversation. People tend to complain. And when you hear something as a concern, just say, could I put that in our church prayer letter? Could I pray for that? Um, do you know why the average Christian sees very few answers to prayer? Is because we pray for the wrong people. What we do is, I pray for your problems, you pray for my problems. And I'm going to heaven. You're going to heaven. So why should we be praying for each other to have a more comfortable life when we're going to heaven? Why not spend our prayer time praying for lost people that are going to hell? And if we would do that more than we do, we would see way more answers to prayer than we see. Because prayer was given to us by God not to live a comfortable life, not to fix our life and eliminate problems. Prayer was given to us by God because He gave us an important job, and that is to reach people with the gospel, to make disciples of the whole world. And He didn't send us out there to do that job without giving us a tool that works, and that key tool is prayer. And if you pray for people that you know that don't know Jesus, one of the things that you will see is that the answers to your prayers will increase because you're praying for lost people. You pray for their needs, but God works, meets their need, and then you are able to lead them to him through that influence. A story I've told a thousand times, but it's still my favorite story. I went to a big uh, world conference in Buenos Aires, Argentina on prayer and evangelism and the pastors of the largest churches in the world were there and I got invited by Joe Aldridge to go with him and uh, there was a pastor in Buenos Aires they were having a revival there the churches were just exploding all over the, the whole area and uh, there was a pastor who said he had this rich rancher 
that he was visiting with occasionally visit because he was trying to witness to him, lead him to Jesus, and the guy was just really resistant. And he drove out to his house to see him one day, and the guy had imported a pulled Hereford bull from Australia, paid a lot of money. Well, the thing's laying there on the ground with all four feet in the air. Uh, his name was Ed Silvaso, and this rancher says when he drives in, Pastor Savasso, Pastor Savasso, pray for my bull. Ed Savasso says, what, what would you do? I never prayed for a bull, but I thought, well, I guess he wants me to pray for his bull. I can pray for his bull. He, and uh, he always had a little vial of anointing oil in his pocket. For whenever he prayed for sick people, he pulled that thing out and he poured it on the bull and prayed for the bull. And he says, now, I know you're not going to believe this, but I swear it's true, that bull got up on its feet. How many pastors do you know that healed a bull? Now, I don't know if he was dead or not. He could have just been taking a nap, he says. But his eyes were rolled back, and he looked like he was dead to me. But whether he was or he wasn't, one thing I know is that five minutes later, I led that cattle rancher to Jesus. And then he made that statement. He says, we don't see answers to prayer because we're always praying for each other. And we're going to heaven. Pray for lost people. And you'll see way more answers to prayer than you would if you didn't. <clears throat> I didn't finish my five points. Pray for them every day. Look for an opportunity to interact with them socially. Look for an opportunity to meet a need in their life. Look for an opportunity to pray for a need in their life. And then number five, you've got some options on this one. You could lead them to the Lord or you could just invite them to men's breakfast or to church or to the Valentine's banquet. Just people take uh, little steps now in their journey to Jesus. So just coach them along. Invite them to an event where there'll be some other Christians. Invite them to an event where you can get to know them. And at some point, you'll be able to know and you can lead them to Christ or they'll trust Christ at an event that you take them to. Five steps. Easy, not a problem. If you have a method, if you have a plan, if you have a strategy and you know what it is and you're looking for how to implement it, God will bring people into your life. He does not bring people that want, that he knows are ready to trust Christ to people that aren't ready to influence their life. So it isn't hard to pray for somebody. Second Corinthians 5.18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I've been given that ministry you have as well, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. 
you shall be my witnesses. So, great question to ask people. I'll ask you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're indwelt by the Spirit. You were the moment you became a believer in Jesus. Romans 8 says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. You're not in Christ's family. So he's in you, the Holy Spirit. And Acts 1 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. So if you have a Mustang with a 500-horsepower motor in it, and we see you going down the road with two old ladies pushing it, we might think, must be something wrong with the engine. So you stop and see if you can help. You say, what's wrong with your engine? And you say, I don't know. And you look over there, and the key's in it, and look, turn it over. What do you mean turn it over? Turn the key over. Start it. Oh, okay. Starts right up. So why aren't you using the engine? Well, I didn't know that, that, how that worked. That you turned the key on, and then I had a, the engine would run. And you think, you shouldn't be owning a car like this. That's a total waste on a person like you. Why would you have a car like this and have two old ladies pushing it down the road when you've got a 500 horsepower motor? Just turn the key on. So did you know that most Christians have the Holy Spirit living inside of them and they have absolutely zero power to live the Christian life with any degree of success? Why? Because the key is not on. What's the key? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So if you're not doing that last part, you're not being a witness for Jesus, then you have no power. You will have no power. It doesn't make any difference what else you do. On your best day, you'll have no power. The Holy Spirit was given to you primarily to be a witness for Jesus. And if you're not proactively choosing to do that, looking for opportunities to do that, if you're not thinking about a plan or a method whereby you can become a witness for Jesus, then you've got no power. The key is not on in your life. Now, it's not like it's hard. Look around, identify people that don't know Jesus, put their name someplace and pray for them every day. Look for an opportunity to chit-chat with with them about football or fishing or whatever. Listen for a need that they express and do something to meet it. Pray for the need. Invite them to church. You take one little baby step in the direction of obedience to being a witness for Jesus, and the power begins to work in your life. One little baby step. I can't think of a baby step that's easier to take than to identify people in your life that don't know Jesus, write their name down, and pray for them every day. That's a piece of cake. But doing that one step will start the journey and will turn the the Spirit of God will begin working in your life. And you'll be amazed at how what the angel said to Paul, all these on the ship have been given to you. It'd be cool to experience that same thing. Number six, Epaphras was a faithful servant of Jesus. Faithful servant of Jesus. Paul said to Timothy, find faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he said about him, who is a faithful servant of Christ. That's probably the greatest compliment 
that Paul could give to someone, that Jesus could give to someone. Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, not so with my servant Moses, he is faithful. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? He is faithful. 1 Samuel 2.35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. I will build him an enduring house. He will walk before me, my anointed always. A faithful priest. Nehemiah 7.2, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall and he has to go back uh, to the capital of Babylon. And he said, then I put Hananiah, my brother, and Han Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man. He was a faithful man. Nehemiah 9, 7, You are of the Lord God who chose Ab Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, of the Perizzite, of the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. Why did God pick Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel and of the Messiah? Huh, you found his heart faithful. Psalms 12:1. Help, Lord, that for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Psalms 101, verse 6, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, God speaking, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. My eyes shall be upon the faithful. Proverbs 28, 20, A faithful man will abound with blessings. Matthew 24, 45, Who then is the faithful, faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave. Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge. I will put you in charge. Imagine Jesus speaking those words. You were faithful. I will put you in charge of many things. I'll give you more to do. And then again, 1 Timothy 1, 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. He considered me faithful. That is, God looked at the Apostle Paul and his evaluation was, there's a faithful man. He put him into service and he strengthened him to do what he gave him to do. Number seven, Epaphras was a prayer warrior. He planted the church of Colossae, then he ended up in prison with the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says about him, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. I don't know what always means, uh, whether it means on their birthday or every day. Always laboring, laboring, it took some work earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, that you may stand perfect. Now that doesn't mean sinless. You've, we've talked about that before. It means grown up, mature in character. So why is that in the Bible? Laboring earnestly that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So when I think about myself and think, what could I do with my time, with my life that would produce the most fruit? 
So one of my commitments is I pray for everyone in our church every week by name. Most of everybody, I have a picture in my iPad, in my prayer app, and in there I have prayer requests and observations, things you may have put in the prayer letter, uh, any number of things I ask you to send my, your goals to me. I put those there. And so every week I go through that. There's a lot of names in there now. And it takes me a while to do it I labor earnestly because I believe that the time I spend praying for you, and I pray exactly these words, that, Lord, would you cause them to be perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, grown up and mature, walking with you, bearing much fruit. Number eight, Epaphras loved those who were a spiritual responsibility. So one of the things that I know is that when I pray for people that my love for them grows. I'm praying for them, that God works in their life, that He blesses them, that He uses them, that He opens up doors for them, that He convicts them of sin, that He heals them, whatever it is, I pray for everybody. And my um, attachment grows tremendously by doing that. Paul says, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. He probably planted a church both in Laodicea and Heropolis as well as Paul's disciple. So I want to be a disciple of Jesus, not just simply someone that says, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I read the Bible, uh, but somebody who is a disciple. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who's doing the work of Christ, accomplishing his will of reaching the lost. And so that's a want, a desire. The average Christian in the United States basically gives that responsibility to pastors and evangelists. That's their job. Let them do that. I'll just be a good person. Uh, somebody said, you know, I don't witness with my words. I witness with my life. And I say, you know, they're going to think you're a Mormon. Um, a lot of good people running around. If you're going to be a witness for Jesus, you've got to do more than simply be a nice person. Um, and so, I like that plan. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be a great speaker. You just have to be faithful. Faithful. Faithful man, faithful woman is somebody who is given something to do and they do it. And so we've been given the responsibility of being a witness for Jesus. We are his ambassadors. We are the only method that God has of the gospel spreading to our, our world. And if we're not faithful, then there's going to be a lot of people that don't hear the good news. So identify people in your life. Pray for them every day. Make it five if you, if you don't want to use a lot of time. Just make a list of five. We talked about seven for heaven. That's got a ring to it, huh? Seven. You can come up with seven names. Pray for them every day. People that you see periodically, and then when you see them, listen, pay attention, interact with them socially, chat about football, invite them over for dinner, go fishing with them, whatever. See who you click with. Look for a need, meet it. Look for a need, pray for it. Invite them to church. It's not hard. It really isn't. But you take one little step of obedience in the direction of being a faithful witness for Jesus, and God becomes your partner. But you just do what everybody else does and uh, you'll have power, but 
It's not working. You have to choose to be a witness for Jesus. It doesn't happen unless you choose to do it. So the method's simple. Come up with a different one, but have a plan to do something to make a difference in the lives of the people that God has sovereignly brought into your life that don't know Christ. Epaphras did, and Paul honors him in, in the book of Colossians. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we are followers of you. We're believers. We've been born again. We're in your family. We're going to live with you forever. We're going to get a glorified body. It's amazing what we have as we sit here tonight in the way of blessing. And there's so many things that had to happen for that to be true of each of us. And we just thank you for the people that you brought into our life, whether they be parents or pastors or neighbors or friends. Somehow we heard. I pray that we would be faithful people who are looking for open doors and divine appointments and opportunities to influence people with the gospel. I pray that you would deliver us from complacency and apathy in regards to this calling we have, and we would want, want, want to make a difference the lives of people you would bring into our life that we know. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.